Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Critical Care, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Great. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to episode three of our podcast series of, of Critical Care Women Leaders. And today I have uh, Dr. Anita Reddy from uh, Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Maya Devon from University of Cincinnati. Welcome, ladies. Thanks, Jess Paul. Thanks for having us on. So my name is Anita Reddy, and I'm a pulmonary critical care physician. And I've been at the Cleveland Clinic for a bit over 13 years. I have uh, had roles in quality over my career, and I was the quality officer for our medical ICU for a bit over a decade, and I also led the sepsis committee here at Cleveland Clinic for about five years. I also was fortunate enough to be able to complete a quality and patient safety fellowship here at the clinic. So needless to say, quality and patient safety is definitely one of my interests and passions. Awesome. Um, Maya, yourself? Yes, so I'm an assistant professor of critical care and biomedical informatics at Cincinnati Children's. I've been here for a little bit over four years. Um, I serve as both the head of diagnostic stewardship for the institution, as well as I do funded research through AHRQ on improvement in in in-hospital cardiac arrest outcomes. Well, that's fantastic. Are there anything particularly personally that's driving you to this area of work? It's something that I think a lot of people don't think of as natural careers is in areas of quality and patient safety. At least when I trained uh, back in the day, um, it wasn't sort of a commonly accepted sort of a pathway for people. It wasn't recognized commonly. Sort of what drove you to this space, Anita? Yeah, so it's quite interesting, actually. When I first came to the clinic, uh, our unit was going through quite a number of changes. We were expanding. We had a new ICU director, and I had arrived at the clinic at the same time as the ICU director, and I came from an institution that had a lot of protocols set up, um, and I was surprised to find there there wasn't much already set up in terms of protocols or order sets, so I was asked by the new director if I wanted to lead some of those initiatives, and of course, being so early in my career, you just say, yes, may I have more? So I, I did that, and what I found over time is that a lot of the quality and patient safety initiatives and principles really lined up well with my obsessive-compulsive uh, personality, and I really felt a passion about improving our patients' care and making sure that that also improved their outcomes. And just a little bit on the personal side, uh, I think it was within about three years of me joining the clinic, uh, a distant cousin who also lived in the area ended up being admitted. And I guess, long story short, he ended up being in the hospital for over two months. And he had um, an undiagnosed brain mass. He had undergone surgery. He was moved to the rehab portion of the hospital and his family had shared several concerns um, with, with the staff there, uh, nursing, RT, et cetera. And unfortunately, he ended up having a, a cardiac arrest and, and passed away. And I think one of the things that drove me from that story is, 
you know, we, we have to listen to our patients and our families. We have to identify ways that we can make their care, um, uh, the, their experience and their care is front of mind, that we're not pushing off concerns. So I think when they share concerns, it can definitely impact uh, safety of our patients. Wow. So what I hear you saying, and I'm so sorry about your loss, first of all, my condolences to you and your family. I mean, it's a horrible journey to go undergo. Uh, we, we, it's a horrible tragedy. And it sounds like your interests, your needs, and the drive to do this kind of fit well with you and evolved to a very uh, productive career at the Cleveland Clinic. So thank you for sharing that. Maya, I'd love to hear your story as well. So I came to um, the safety and quality side as, as a critical care fellow. Um, I had done a master's in public health with medical school and had seen myself working on um, more of a system side, but on the outpatient, and then went through my pediatric residency and fell in love with critical care. And so as a fellow, I sort of struggled to figure out how you bring those two things together. And that love of systems learning and driving of improvement from a big picture standpoint fit nicely with the quality and safety realm. Um, for us in the pediatric ICU, children and families are at their most vulnerable when they are hospitalized. And we often will have bad outcomes, even if everything is done right. So for me, it was really about making sure that I was providing a high quality and safe experience. So that way I was sure for myself, for my team and for our patients and families that we had truly done everything we could for them. And that really sort of has driven my work um, moving forward, both on more of the operations quality and safety side, as well as the research. Interesting, that's a very interesting background. I'm gonna uh, sort of piggyback on that Maya a little bit. Um, so I'm an adult ICU doc, and a lot of our listeners will be. Um, pediatrics seems a little bit different, and um, it seems like a lot of the needs are similar. I don't know, what what are you, what are you seeing in that space that's different or or similar, if you don't mind? Well, first, I think we, in general, um, as critical care doctors, focus on our differences the most. So whether it's a cardiac ICU, a med surge ICU, pediatric. NICU, et cetera, we, we focus on our differences. And I think we have a lot more simula similarities than we give ourselves credit for. Um, I think the key difference in, in pediatrics is one, the developmental shift of our patients and being able to prepare to provide a safe space, whether you're two kilos or 150 kilos being sure that we're incorporating the understanding and the vision of the families, especially for our chronic critically ill patients who come in and out of the ICU very much, whose parents practically run an ICU in their living room at home, uh -huh. um, and making sure we're, we're incorporating their, their knowledge and engagement for their child and often for their child's rare disease into how we're caring for them. Um, and then just the, the confusingness of the fact that children change over time. So they grow, so their vital signs change, and there's a wide range of what's a normal vital sign based upon age and size, dosing, and making sure dosing is safe over a, a large range of, of weights. And then being sure that we are training and preparing for whether it's a resuscitation or placing a line or whatever, for again, this broad range of both um, clinical issues as well as size and developmental milestones. So while I can get away with doing, you know, some local in a central line in a 18 year old, that is never going to work in an 18 month old. I mean, you usually can't even get them to let you listen to them with a stethoscope. So it, it is, it is figuring out how to practice across that spectrum. And that's what we love about it, but it does bring some unique challenges as well. That's, 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 that's well stated. Uh, totally. Anita, 
Um, I want to sort of talk about something you and I have talked about before, something you're involved with at the clinic and also Society of Critical Care Medicine, which is the Choosing Wisely campaign. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that with our audience. Absolutely. So the Choosing Wisely campaign was something that was set up by ABIM, the ABIM Foundation in 2012. And it all started actually in 2010 when Howard Brody wrote an article in New England Journal of Medicine when he challenged uh, the United States Medical Specialty Societies to identify five tests or treatments that are overused and don't provide any sort of meaningful benefit to patient care. So the ABIM Foundation set up the Choosing Wisely campaign to promote conversations between clinicians and their patients and encourage them to choose care that's supported by the literature, the evidence, and was not duplicative, it wasn't harming them, and pick tests and procedures that are truly necessary. So then the campaign uh, suggested that these societies identify certain tests or procedures where the necessity should be questioned and discussed. So as a result of this effort, they've been able to involve over 80 national societies and those societies have provided over 550 recommendations on tests and procedures that are potentially unnecessary. They've also made a lot of effort in creating webinars, newsletters, and even patient-facing materials. So it's a very successful, broad campaign. That's very helpful. Great oversight. So you guys have a lot of experience across a whole, whole range of patient safety, quality, and Maya, I apologize. We didn't even talk about all your informatics stuff and all the sort of the interesting stuff in health, health information technology in the space. So I'm sure we could talk forever, but to kind of keep the podcast within a reasonable time frame, I'm hoping the, the two of you can kind of leave our audiences now um, up to this point, we're talking on pre-pandemic. What are some key lessons you've learned in your body of work, if you don't mind sharing with us, starting with you, Maya? Yeah, so I think the key things um, that I've learned is that, um, you know, we as a group of critical care doctors are actually pretty far along the systems improvement path. It's, you know, engrossed in, in our journals. We talk about it at meetings and, and it's something that we've sort of embraced as a group. So I think we've now sort of moved to, to the next level in which we need to make it easy for people to do the right thing. So I would say we need to switch from just making a list of, of what you need to do and say, how does this fit into your workflow? How do I improve the usability, the human factors to make the right thing the natural thing? How, where do you have to reach in a room to, to get the supplies that you need to do the safe scrub of your central line to, produce, to reduce your collapses? How do we then take it there and, and make things more simple for people? So I think that's one. Um, I think the second is creating a shared vision or a true north for your group. Because again, we have done so much in this realm that it often feels like, oh, another quality improvement project, oh, another thing somebody's asking me to document or do. What is our true north? And the PICU, we use something that we've developed in our institution called the PICU chain of survival, um, modeled after the AHA, in which we talk about predicting bad events through recovery and rehab for our patients. And every quality improvement project is put into a bucket to say, this is where this fits. This fits in the training aspect of our patient's journey to try to bring it back to the bedside. 
and then collaborate. Like I said earlier, we're much more similar than we are different. And if anything that COVID has taught us is we need to be fluid in how we share and, and what we do. And so spending the time to really learn from your colleagues, whether it's within your unit or within your institution or within larger um, collaboratives, I think is going to be the key for us going forward. Awesome. So I heard you say sort of make things easy, share the vision, make a good a true north, and then collaborate across the disciplines, across the fields, across institutions. That's excellent. Uh, Nita, what are your key lessons? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I've learned at the clinic is, so when you're involved in local initiatives, making sure that the individuals that are involved understand the why behind the initiatives. Oftentimes we'll say, well, we need to do this, and we mandate it, but we don't always share the reasoning. How is this going to benefit our patients? And some tricks or tips that I would offer up to the group is when you're trying to engage a multidisciplinary, multi-professional group, we found that nurses tend to respond better to individual patient stories and that physicians and other providers tend to respond more to data, so more hard evidence on why we should be doing certain quality and patient initiatives. And I think a kind of a corollary to this is that we should always approach these initiatives in a way that it's all inclusive. Uh, everyone that might have a role in that particular initiative should be involved in some way to get their perspective. And kind of tangential to that, making sure that you're getting the bedside perspective if you're focusing on a patient safety, patient quality issue. So I would say go to the bedside, experience what your patients are going through, experience what your caregivers are going through. Sometimes uh, quality and patient safety initiatives are led by administrators who may not fully understand the processes at the bedside or are connected to, to those things. The last thing that we've actually found is that you can also greatly affect quality and patient safety when you engage the patient themselves when they're able and their families. So I'll provide an example. Uh, I'll see, I'll hear from patients who, who are able to interact with me. If I am telling them we're going to be removing a Foley or we're going to be removing a central line, there is some hesitancy that they don't feel well enough to get up and go to a bedside commode or they don't want to get stuck for labs. Um, they'd rather keep those lines and, and drains in, but helping them understand that these are sources of infection and we don't truly need them anymore, I think helps them get on the same page as us so that we can improve, um, lessen the chance of them getting infections from these lines and drains. That's great. So I heard you say sort of um, kind of piggyback on what Maya was saying earlier was know the why and then it sort of provide almost like an individualistic data, an individualized data or storytelling or whatever the audience needs to really drive that behavior or drive that change. Um, experience the clinical aspect and sort of having everyone on the team sort of understand the clinical relevance of what decisions that are being made and the reasoning for that. And then engaging patients and families and the communities essentially to help enlist the effort. I think as physicians, we oftentimes are too physician centric and we don't really expand the, our scope is what you're kind of getting at. I think that's very well said, um, both of you. So thank you. So this is awesome work. It's a whole like body of work that's just in incredibly exciting, incredibly rewarding. And then along comes COVID-19. And if you're like my institution, other institutions, all of a sudden, a lot of the work that we were working in the space 
suddenly gets paused or gets distracted or suddenly changes. Tell us how the pandemic has affected your work in the space in a succinct manner. I'm asking a lot. I know it's, it's a huge question, but if you don't mind sharing a little bit of your experience in, in the, as it relates to quality and patient safety related to COVID-19, how the pandemic affected that, uh, that body of work and starting with you, Anita. So I think some of the things I've noticed more is that with COVID, we've been having trouble with ventilator mechanics and that patients seem to have a neurologic component to their disease. So these patients are, are more sedated. We are aiming for a degree of vent synchrony that may be unrealistic. And so I, I feel frequently see patients who are on a large amount of sedation or are paralyzed. This then leads to a higher rate of delirium. They're on a ventilator longer. And then when you think about just COVID in general and the practices that have been set up in health systems and hospitals, is that we're not allowing families to come visit um, if the patients are COVID positive. And so this reduced family interaction and then caregiver uh, caregivers staying in the room and interacting with the patients um, is much less to reduce exposure. And I think we also aren't doing as, as much mobility as we could be in these patients. And a lot of these translate over to the non-ICU areas as well. So I think a lot of these go hand in hand and one leads to another. Great. That sounds great. So the idea what you're kind of getting at is sort of the ICU liberation. That's actually going to be our next podcast, believe it or not, is the, the idea of sort of these respiratory illnesses, the sedation, agitation, delirium, um, analgesia, all those aspects, and then mobilization. And of course, the lastly, which you mentioned very importantly, which is the family engagement, completely changing this, the direction of this work and um, making some major disruptions. Maya, what are your thoughts? You know, I think on the PEDS ICU side, we have uh, met some very unique clinical challenges. So the first being the care of adult patients. So many pediatric ICUs, ours included, have expanded our criteria for patients that we care for mm -hmm. and shifting and understanding um, how to care for adult patients um, obviously uh, pushes our staff and, and pushes our resources. So harnessing things like the popcorn network that's out there that has been sharing protocols and utilizing our adult colleagues has been huge for us. I think other clinical challenges for us have been just new presentations. So the presentation of MISC and how we manage it and how we treat it. It's, you know, literally looking at a, a new diagnosis that we're seeing in pediatric patients that we haven't seen before um, and, and has fo forced us to do more with less. So like everybody else, we have been trying to, to limit our exposure to our staff, share PPE and other resources with our adult colleagues. And so try to do these new and unique things at, at a time with less. Um, and so I, I think that has been our, um, you know, our, our biggest struggle and that it just sort of impacts everything else is that when that's your focus, there isn't the opportunity to drive new or innovative approaches or changes to care. Um, and so feel a little stuck in, in sort of moving the science and, and the work forward. Yeah, you bring up a very good point. And I'm curious as to a little side question, which your, your comments make me think a little bit about is, um, I feel like COVID has exposed all our weaknesses and the weaknesses that we kind of started with are things like the interconnectivity, the idea of making things easy, the idea of things, you know, all the operation things we, we work, we put into that. And I feel like that needed to be in place before the pandemic happened. Do you all feel that? Or what are your thoughts on that? 
I, I mean, I definitely agree. I think one of the things that we're a little bit more spoiled in in peds is because we care for so many rare diseases. We are very interconnected with our other pediatric colleagues across the country through mm -hmm. various collaboratives and, and other such things that enabled us, for example, for MISC to quickly share learnings and spread them amongst the different pediatric ICUs pretty quickly. Um, so I do think some of those infrastructures that we had in place to, uh, to address other rare pediatric conditions enabled us to be more successful. But yes, I completely agree. Any weakness that you had before the stress of the system has definitely made more noticeable. Yeah. Anita, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I certainly echo what Maya just said, that our weaknesses are being <laughs> displayed pretty broadly uh, right now. And I think we have forgotten to do some of the things that we usually do in critically ill patients, and you had mentioned the IT liberation bundle, and I, I would just highlight that uh, for one example, is that why did we move away from what's been proven care for our critically ill patients? We, we shouldn't forget that. We can build on top of that when we see something new, but I think that's the, one of the core elements that we should be undertaking when we care for, for these patients. That's great. All right. Well, that's awesome. That's a lot of information that you guys have shared with us. Um, any advice now that we're seeing a massive resurgence of cases in pretty much the entire country and uh, abroad as well uh, with the variants and such, and now um, uh, very high acuity and high, um, uh, just a number of cases and, and overload. Any advice you would give to your colleagues, like one or two things you would mention that you think, you know what, we should consider this this time around. Um, start with you, Anita. Yeah, so I'll echo again what I had mentioned before is let's get back to the basics. Let's follow uh, our, our ARDS management, the IC liberation bundle, getting back to some of these quality elements of do we really need those lines and foleys? Do we really need all of these labs? And just scrutinize, scrutinize the literature a bit more, I think. There's a lot of data that's out there on COVID. Uh, some of the literature is is not of high quality. So, you know, take a deep breath. Don't always jump to the most uh, innovative thing on the horizon. Maybe give it some time to vet out before uh, automatically implementing um, treatments. Oh yeah, totally. I can think of all the things I wanted to do early on and reading all this stuff. And uh, I'm kind of glad we didn't jot upon all of it. Um, and, uh, but we'll see. Um, Maya, what are your thoughts? I would say, um, ask for help. I think we're now in the marathon part. This is no longer a sprint, whether it's you're at the bedside with a patient and you need more hands, ask for more hands. If you're having trouble with your academic side of your career, your professional life, balancing things at home, be prepared to ask for help and model that for everyone around you, um, that we all are not going to be able to accomplish everything that we were doing before. And, and that's okay. Um, and, and so normalizing that, especially if you work with trainees or learners to make sure that they, they see you, um, both your struggle and your willingness to ask for help. That's fantastic advice. That's a great segue to our final question, which is sort of this, um, this podcast series is based on critical care women leaders. Um, and I sort of, I started this partly because watching my wife go through this whole, uh, this last, um, uh, her struggle with academics and clinical work. And just kind of curious from your perspective from critical care, what are the, some of the personal challenges in this pandemic that you and others are facing both professionally and at home, especially related to your roles and, and your home life? Maya, you want to start? Yeah, so I, I think I feel what 
lots of people feel, and I don't think this is a woman specific question. I think this is all of us, um, that the bucket is empty and it's impossible to refill. So between, we have five children. So between the five kids at home, the uh, funded research and the clinical work, the bucket is empty. And the things that I love to do, I love travel, I love theater, I love arts, I love going out to eat. None of those things are currently available to, to refill the bucket. And, and so finding other ways to bring joy, I, I think as what we've been trying to do. And I am very open and, and willing to ask for help. Um, but, but I don't, like I said, I don't necessarily feel like that's necessarily unique to women, but we often will bear the brunt of the changes, the caregiving, and then the emotional support. So, you know, I, my door is, is often knocked on by others to come, especially trainees and, and chat with, um, and that's what I'm here for. But that emotional load can be a lot as well. Wow. Well, thank you for taking that on and for doing all you're doing. Anita, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I very much agree with what Maya said. I think there is a degree of burnout, especially given we're, what, 10 to 11 months into this, the physical exhaustion as we are all being called in to do more clinical time, even though we have other duties as well, and that mental exhaustion. And when I say the mental exhaustion, it's taking care of these patients. They're so critically ill, watching, unfortunately, a lot of them pass away without family at the bedside. Um, and we take, uh, we're the replacement for that as they're passing away and um, not being able to care for all the people that you want to, given our hospitals and our ICUs are so full. So, you know, we're a huge referral center. I can't bring in patients that we would normally be able to, and I know people that we can help. So there's just this mental uh, struggle that I'm, that we can't do everything. And um, that's hard. And I, I would say that, you know, early on in the pandemic, when we didn't know a lot about how COVID is being uh, transmitted, how infective it was, you know, there's a lot of fear, I think, in patient, in caregivers, who work in a medical setting. Well, I don't want to pass it on to my family. And we didn't, school wasn't in session. We didn't have anyone to care for. I only have one daughter because um, we don't have family nearby. We actually were going to send our daughter uh, to Texas to be taken care of by her grandparents. And we had no idea how long that was going to be. Eventually I said, well, I can't handle this. I can't handle sending her away. And we found an alternative, but um, I think these are all things that just weigh on you, as Maya said, as, as the woman in the family, uh, we do have to take the burden of a lot of the things that happen at home. But I would say that in a time where we're not able to enjoy some of the other things uh, that we would normally be doing, and I have uh, similar things that gratify me, like what Maya said, eating out, traveling, especially, we're not able to do that. But I did find that our family was able to connect more, even though we were at home and we were able to enjoy the outdoors more. We, we would go outside almost every day when the weather was okay. So I think if we were to find a silver lining, I think having more personal interactions with family when otherwise it might've been um, busy with other types of activities where we're not relating to each other as well. 
Oh yeah, I think that's great. That's great advice. I mean, I can definitely say that I've enjoyed spending time with my family as well, which um, like, you know, traveling or doing other things, a lot of distractions or just simply shuttling them from place to place can be really exhausting. But I, I don't have five, like Maya, we have three, but that's a lot, five's a lot. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so let's kind of um, re recap. Thank you, Onus. Thank you both. So you both talked about important lessons such as making things easy in the quality and patient safety world to make things easy, have a shared vision, collaborate, know the why of why we're doing certain things, um, experience the clinical, com communicate the clinical reasoning behind a lot of things, and then engaging patient safety. Then you also gave us a lot of important lessons about, you know, the Choosing Wisely campaign, how we're very similar in adult and peds, and how we kind of think about the pandemic and how we responded and how we're going to respond this time and, you know, share, really dive deep in the literature, dive deep into the understanding of the data, um, be more scientific, be more methodical, and be more of a stronger patient advocates, even when there's challenges around. So, um, and then lastly, of course, taking care of ourselves, making sure that we are uh, responsive for ourselves, our teammates and others, and, uh, and reaching out if there's any concerns. I wanna just thank you both today for taking the time. Um, this is again, Jaspal Singh for uh, Consultant 360. Uh, you're listening to Critical Care Women Leaders, uh, Drs. Maya, Maya Devon from uh, University of Cincinnati and Anita Reddy from Cleveland Clinic. I just wanna thank you both for joining us today. Thank, Thank you very you much. Yourself.